take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 9. Continuing our exposition in Luke last week, uh, we were in Luke 9, <clears throat> verses uh, um, excuse me, my, uh, my voice is getting a little tired here. It has been a day. But uh, we were in Luke 9, and we were talking about the transfiguration. And remember, last week we actually went to 2 Peter 1. And uh, in 2 Peter 1, we were talking about Peter referencing the transfiguration and telling us that we have a more sure word of prophecy than the transfiguration, than that word on the mount. We have a more sure word in the word of God and that it calls us unto this life, this life of knowledge, of abounding in the knowledge of Christ. Well, we continue this week uh, from that context of the transfiguration. So Jesus and his, uh, his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, are coming off the Mount of Transfiguration. And that's where we are going to pick up and continue this week. So in Luke, we've just witnessed one of the most stunning, one of the most majestic moments in the life of Jesus Christ, uh, his transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they go up with Jesus to pray. They actually follow asleep, they wake, which is pretty typical of them when, when Jesus is praying, right? And they wake up to Jesus being transfigured and Moses and Elijah uh, with Jesus speaking about his death. And as they are coming off the mount, Peter says, Jesus, it's good that we were here. Maybe we should make tabernacles for you. And as he's speaking, a voice comes from this cloud that says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. If you want to memorialize this, Peter, if you want to remember this, don't put rocks on top of one another. Listen to what he has to say. And we pick up in verse 37 this week. And the Bible says this, It came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. So we pick up in our narrative according to Luke 9.37, on the next day, the next day following the transfiguration. And many people were waiting for him when he came down from the mount, when he and his three disciples arrived. Now we have come to expect this by now. Jesus uh, is a pretty popular guy. Uh, they, we've understood already, remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus asked them, whom do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're another one of the prophets risen from the dead. So by this point, the people by and large have rejected Jesus's actual identity as Messiah, as the Messiah who would come. They're calling him a good prophet. They're calling him several other things. And on the heels of this, Jesus reminds them that he will have to be rejected and that he will be killed uh, after being rejected. So the people are following him. Not everybody is necessarily on board with who he is, but they're on board with what he's doing for sure. And don't forget that. Don't forget that Jesus was popular, but not quite in the way that Jesus would desire to be in that being accepted as the Messiah. So he's made it clear that it's not enough that you accept him as a prophet. To simply see him as a good man inherently rejects him for who he truly is. And this will lead to Jesus' death on the cross. In verses 38 and 39, we find then, among this crowd, the Bible says, And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him 
that he foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departeth from him. A man within this group of people who is uh, following Jesus as he comes down from the mount uh, cries out to him, begging him to help his only son. The man describes the problem that there is a demonic spirit in control of him. His son will suddenly cry out. He says that he'll foam at the mouth, that uh, this spirit, he says, will tear at him and will cause this young man to be harmed. And the father is at his end with concern and with care for his only son. You know, we've seen many demon-possessed men in the book of Luke now. We've seen Jesus heal many. But you can perhaps imagine how troubled a loving father must be at the condition of his son. We saw the demoniac of Gadara, and, and, and he was not really around many people at all. Now, uh, he ran back into the city and most likely had some family there. But here we find a father pleading for the condition of his son. But what makes this account most interesting, particularly in the context of Luke 9, is verse 40. He says, And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. Now remember, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he had only the three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. The other nine were still down on the bottom of the mountain, presumably, uh, awaiting Jesus in some form or fashion. And this troubled father, it seems, had brought his son to these nine disciples and asked them to cast out the demon. And why shouldn't they, right? They had already been commissioned, as we read at the beginning of Luke 9, to go out two by two and to go throughout the cities of Galilee, preaching the gospel, casting out demons, healing the sick in Jesus' name. And we talked about that, and they went out, and they did the job, and they came back, and they had cast out demons, and they had healed the sick in the name of Jesus. So they've done this already. There's little doubt that each of these men had had some experience, to some degree, doing miracles as Jesus had already commissioned them. And perhaps as well, as this man came and said, please heal my son, not only were they thinking, hey, we've done this before, but perhaps as well they were considering their failure with the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, they had been commissioned to go out two by two, and when they came back, Jesus says, we're going to go out and do a place to rest for a little bit. After times of ministry, Jesus would often separate to, to rest, and now he brings his disciples out to rest, but the people follow him, and the scriptures say that Jesus had compassion on them. And as he was teaching them all day, at the end of the day, the disciples say, hey, you need to send them away now to get some food. And Jesus looks at them and says, now you feed them. Here they've just been working under the miraculous power of Jesus Christ and in his name. And it comes to a new context. It comes to a new idea. And they say, whoa, we don't, we don't know how to handle this one. We don't have the money. And Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. So perhaps they were thinking of the feeding of the 5,000. Perhaps they were thinking as well of their failure at the Sea of Galilee and their, their faithlessness. Perhaps they were thinking about Jesus sending them out two by two and that they've done this before. And all of this kind of coming together to say, hey, we can cast out this demon. So they tried and the scriptures say they could not. Well, what does this mean? They were faithless when they had no solution to the feeding of the 5,000. They were faith, faithless when they were in dreaded fear on the storm of the Sea of Galilee. And now they try to step out in faith and heal this, this man's son and, and cast out this demon by their own initiative, and they failed. 
What does this mean? Verses 41 and 42, we read this. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. So Jesus begins here by rebuking the generation. And take note of the fact that this rebuke is focused not upon the man, but upon the disciples. It's not upon the man who brought his son to be healed, but upon the disciples who fell short of casting out the demon from this lad. And we'll talk about how we know that in just a moment. Jesus has the son brought to him. And while he was coming, the Bible says the devil threw this man down and tear him. So this same idea of the foaming at the mouth, the tearing, the self-harm, whatever it might have been, perhaps some sort of convulsions, maybe something like a seizure. Even among modern accounts of demonic possession, this is not too uncommon, right? And so the demon comes, he's tearing at him. Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. He casts the unclean spirit out of the child and delivers him again to his father. Now, in order to understand more thoroughly the events as they take place, we're going to go to the Matthew account, which adds a considerable amount of detail, particularly to Jesus's rebuke of this generation, specifically as disciples on this point of faith. In Matthew 17, in verses 18 and 19, We read this, and Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? So just as in Luke, Jesus casts the devil out of the child. But then we read this important follow-up question, which we don't get in Luke. The disciples saying, why couldn't we cast him out? Look, Jesus, we we were sent out two by two in your name. We cast out devils in your name. We healed in your name. We did these things in your name. Why now, when we took the initiative to try to cast out this demon, why couldn't we do it? We we, we didn't take the initiative at the feeding of the 5,000. You said you're a faithless generation. We, We were afraid at the Sea of Galilee. We were faithless. And now we tried and you say, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Jesus replies in verses 20 and 21. Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence from yonder, to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Now this is important. Jesus says what they lacked yet and still is faith. He tells them that if they had the faith, only the size of a mustard seed, which is a very tiny seed, they could move mountains and nothing would be impossible unto them. Nothing would be beyond their ability in Christ to perform. Howbeit Jesus then states, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Now this final phrase interests me. And this final phrase interests me because at first glance, this whole interaction is somewhat troubling to my spirit. Jesus had told them before to go out and cast out devils in his name, and they did. They went out, they cast out devils, and those devils, apparently, it would seem, fled. They didn't come back, and we don't read anything in the report about, hey, Jesus, this didn't work, right? Here they try and they fail, and we might presume they used the same technique as when Jesus had commissioned them. And then after rebuking them for for their faith, for their lack of faith, Jesus says, oh, and by the way, 
Some demons are a little bit more difficult than just that. Some need prayer and fasting. And I'm troubled by that because it's as if Jesus is rebuking them for something he hadn't told them. Now, Jesus wouldn't do that. That's not how Christ works. That's not how God works. God does not hold, not, he, may I use a double negative? God does not not tell us things and then get angry at us for not doing the things he didn't tell us to do. That's not how God works. How can Jesus say that faith was the issue when in fact the issue was their needing prayer and fasting? But I don't believe that's really what Jesus is saying here. Follow me. Jesus is not adding a new layer to the expectation of their efforts that they had not known before, but rather we might see this as a rebuke in the manner in which they conducted their ministry. It's not that the method itself was a problem that they had used previously as they were commissioned two by two to go and cast out demons. The same method that had previously cast out demons could still do it, and that's because the method itself wasn't important. It was the power behind the method, right? It was the power behind the method that really mattered. Jesus seems to be implying here, then, as we consider what is the concept of prayer and fasting, right? What is the concept of prayer and fasting? Why do we pray? Why do we fast? Well, prayer is a petition unto the Lord and an attempt and an opportunity for us to align our hearts with the heart of God, to seek after God's will and to seek after that which we desire of him. And fasting is, again, it's a type of, uh, of submission. It's humility. It's an opportunity for us to humbly align ourselves with the will of the Father. It is us seeking the will of the Father. It is an outreach to the Lord for a need. So perhaps here, Jesus wasn't explicitly saying, well, you didn't pray for long enough or fast long enough explicitly, but rather what you could use, disciples, is a little bit more me in your efforts. What you could use, disciples, is a little bit more me. He seems to be implying that the heart with which they attempted to cast out these demons was wrong, so their efforts were not driven by faith, even though, even though this time they're stepping out in initiative. You know, sometimes we step out. Sometimes we, we, we don't step out. And then we see what God could have done or we see what God does later and we say, man, why didn't I just step out and trust him? And then have you ever been in one of these situations? And as, as, a, as a pastor, this happens unfortunately too often where you step out to a portion of ministry or you're ready to do something, whether that's evangelize or whatever it might be. And as you're assessing whether you should do it, you say, yeah, I can do that. I've, been, I've done that before. I can do that. And you never stop to say, God, do you want me to do that? Or you never stop to say, God, can you help me do that? Yeah, I've evangelized a thousand times. I can do that. Well, wait a minute. No, you can't. Christ can use you. But what are we but tools in the hand of the master? We can't do anything spiritual outside of Christ. We have no spiritual power outside of Christ. Our effectiveness is only to the degree to which we are submitted to be used of the Father, to be used of the Son, to be used by the Holy Spirit. That's where our effectiveness lies. So could it be that when Jesus says, this kind cometh not out by prayer and fasting, 
as an element of this rebuke when they said, why could we not do this when in fact before they had? Is because at this point, it is something they had done before. Could it be that this, at, by this point, the disciples maybe were beginning to misplace their confidence? Where they said, yeah, we've done this one before, so we can handle this. This isn't new to us. We can do this one. That perhaps because of past success, they had confidence not in the Lord for future success, but in themselves for future success. Perhaps something where before they were careful to align their hearts with the message of the gospel, here they sought to strike out on their own, cast them out for their own success. Maybe this time they said, hey, Jesus is gone. We can do this one. And their heart was not quite in a place of humility. Perhaps maybe it was apathy. Approaching their battle with the spirit realm with levity. Failing to remember that no battle is fought against the demonic realm and won easily. And that without a heart positioned in prayerful meditation and readiness to submit to the will of God, it's just not going to work. It is an oft temptation of, of, of every believer. To approach the word of God or the ministry of God in a thoughtless way. It's an off temptation to get on autopilot, is it not? To just kind of do what we do and do what we do because we know how to do it. As if once we get the formula down, we don't really need God's power anymore because we've got it down. We, we know what we need to do. We see the job as doable, all the while forgetting that there is no spiritual enterprise that is ever doable, no matter how much a person knows. The process that that to be spiritually successful, it must have the power of God. It must be done in faith. God's work cannot be done carelessly. And indeed, God's work cannot be done God's way if we're not doing it in submission to his spirit. So I believe that's what Jesus was telling the disciples here. When he says, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. I believe he was seeking to help them remember that they need to realign their hearts with not just what Jesus is doing, but with submission to the authority of Christ in doing it. Unbelief is not simply a state of mind where you think something cannot be done. In fact, unbelief can just as often be when you believe something spiritual can be done outside of God's power. So we continue in Luke, verses 43 and 44. The Bible says, And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings Sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus used this occasion to make another statement to his disciples, and I love this. How often has Jesus said now, here, 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 here? He said it in Luke 7. He said it in Luke 8. He's saying it in Luke 9. Be careful, not just that you hear, but how you hear. Now he's saying, let these sayings sink in. Sink into your ears. Get deep. Let them get from here to here, right? Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. The saying which he is calling them to consider is not specifically that he will be delivered into the hands of men. You see that for there means because. 
Rather, he wants his disciples to root themselves in his teaching. And the reason why he needs them to root themselves in his teachings is because there's coming a day when Jesus will no longer be with them. Why is it that they must learn to understand the power of faith? Why is it that they must understand what it is to have faith? That it's faith is not, I can't, nor is faith, I can, but faith is, Christ can. And they must glean that. They must know that. They must understand how to tap into the fullest potential of faith in God because... As Jesus said just three verses prior, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? How long can I fill in the gap? How long can I be here to do for you what you're failing to do? How long will I be here to help you? You've got to grow up spiritually. You've got to take that next step because you're the ones I'm leaving behind and I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to have to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to be rejected and killed. And then I'm leaving you with the ministry in my power. But you've got you've to learn how to do that first. You've got to learn faith. Of course, verse 45 tells us, But they understood not this saying. And it was hid from them that they perceived it not. And they feared to ask him, of that saying. So the disciples didn't understand that. They did not connect the circumstances at hand with Jesus' warnings. And we know this all throughout. If you read the account with your family this week of the resurrection, you would find in the John account that when Peter and John arrive at the tomb, John arrives first, right? And he looks in. And then Peter blows right by him and gets into the tomb. And then John says when he saw the clothes lying there, that he remembered the sayings of the Lord, that all of those tumblers began to fall into place. He he began to understand what Jesus was saying all those times that he said, I have to die and rise again. It was all starting to come clear. And then, of course, when the Holy Spirit would fall on them at Pentecost, then everything would finally fall into place. But at this point, they didn't fully understand the realities of Jesus' sure death on the cross. They didn't foresee the day when he would be taken from them. They didn't realize just how much responsibility God would give to them as he uses them as the tools to carry forward the Lord's work into this new thing called the church. And not only did they not understand, but the Bible says that they were afraid to ask what he meant. Perhaps this is the same thing that happens in classrooms and in churches where the teacher asks, are there any questions? And nobody understood what he said. But nobody's going to ask because they think that if they ask, then they're going to look dumb and everyone else is because everyone else understood and they're all just going to roll their eyes, right? Because, oh, this one person didn't get it when nobody got it because the guy didn't say anything coherent, right? And, and, and this happens sometimes, right? So all of the disciples are looking around saying, well, I don't want to look like the dummy and he doesn't want to look like the dummy. So nobody asks because nobody wants to look like the dummy. And so they just stay in their ignorance because they were afraid to ask him what he meant. After all, who wants to pipe up and ask Jesus, did you just say you're going to die? Did, did, I, did I hear that right? That's, you know, that's, that's not something you want to ask him about. So one way or another, they don't ask Jesus about his words and they fall to the ground. We transition and it's important that we keep these contexts together. We transition in verse 46 to a new reasoning among the, the disciples. Then there arose a reasoning among them. Which of them should be greatest? A new contention. Which 
should be greatest. Matthew 18 clarifies that they're looking forward to the kingdom and arguing specifically, as Matthew 18, 1 says, which of them should be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The incident at hand makes it abundantly clear that the disciples had not yet gathered the fullest nature of the kingdom. They had not yet understood the nature of their role within the kingdom. Verse 47 says, And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him. So he perceives their thoughts. They're contending over their hypothetical greatness. Right Now, when we link this contention to what we might surmise was going on just a few verses earlier with their attempt to cast out this demon, I believe my theory about prayer and fasting makes more sense. Right? Jesus is telling them, look, what you're missing in this is the humility to understand you're just a vessel to be used. Because here they are just after this event, and they're fighting over who's the best, who's the greatest, who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand, who gets to have the honor and the glory in the kingdom. And so Jesus, because they've missed it, takes the child. And in Matthew 18, 2, the Bible says that he put that child in the midst of them. Verse 48, and said unto them, whosoever shall receive this child in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Remember, their topic here, who's the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus says, if you want to be considered great in the kingdom, look to this child. Receive this child in my name and receive him. And in receiving him, you receive me. And in receiving me, you receive him that sent me. Now the question becomes, what does this mean? And first we ask the question, what does it not mean? Whenever you come to a portion of scripture where the meaning is uh, somewhat difficult to discern, where the meaning can be ambiguous, that it can have more than one meaning, we should always use what is clear to interpret what is not. So we allow scripture to interpret scripture and we get, we begin at what is absolutely clear and then we use that to let us know what this doesn't mean, or could mean, and then we take that troubled passage and we take what could mean and we work out what it probably means or what it might mean, or perhaps if, if uh, depending on the passage and the scriptures, what it does mean. Sometimes it's just a maybe, sometimes it can be more clear. So we use what is clear to help us interpret what is not clear. We use what is consistent to help us understand that which seems inconsistent. And we always start with that base. That base being, number one, the Word of God is true from beginning to end. Number two, the Word of God does not contradict. So we start with that base, then we go to what's clear, and then we use that to understand what's not clear. Now in this case, we understand what Jesus cannot be saying. Jesus cannot say that to do kindness to children is to be born again. Doesn't work that way, right? The entirety of the scriptures, of the clarity of scriptures in regard to salvation is not be good to children and thou shalt be saved, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible uh, cannot be speaking of being born again here. And this can be muddied because of one of the terms that we use for being born again, that term to accept Christ, right? And it's not necessarily a wrong term, but then you're reading Luke chapter 9, verse 48, and he says, whosoever receives him receives me. And you say, aha, 
to receive Christ, to receive the Father, is to receive children. And then we get into the social gospel where I say, okay, if I go to Zambia and I help a bunch of little kids, then I'm, I'm in the faith. And it doesn't work that way. Because the scriptures clearly teach us that salvation comes by accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you are a sinner. That because of your sin, you've been separated from God. That Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt for that sin. That he rose from the dead to secure eternal life for all who will accept it. And that we accept it by rejecting, refusing anything and everything that we might be trusting in to get ourselves to heaven and placing our full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to deliver us from the judgment of God on the day of judgment. And so knowing what the scriptures tell us about salvation, that can't be what this is saying. And it's made clear if we consult the parallel passage in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 through 5, Jesus says this, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. Well, this helps out quite a bit, doesn't it? This helps us quite a bit. So in this passage, being born again, the concept, being converted, entering into the kingdom of heaven, how does it happen? Not by receiving children, but by receiving the truth of Christ as a child. Being converted as a little child with childlike faith is the qualification for entering into the kingdom of heaven. And this does not contradict with our understanding of belief in the least. If you've raised children, if you've been around children, you understand full well that children, they're just magnificent, aren't they? They trust implicitly. They're fantastic. They do not hedge their bets. They don't say, Dad, what's for breakfast tomorrow? And Dad says, well, we'll have to see when we get there. So they start packing food in their, you know, in, in their pockets just in case Dad doesn't have breakfast ready. They trust that Mom or Dad is going to have breakfast ready for them in the morning. They don't hoard food. They don't hoard uh, things because they, they trust. They, they, they don't have backup plans. And this is how a person must accept the gospel to be saved. If I add anything to the gospel, if I hedge my bets against the gospel, if I keep one foot in the world just in case this gospel thing is a sham, then I will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. We talked about it this morning. Faith doesn't work that way, right? I can't look at that chair and say, I believe that chair will hold me up, and then come and sit in this chair and say, I had faith in that chair. To have faith in that chair is for me to say, I believe that chair can hold me up, and then to sit in the chair. And until I've sat in the chair, it's not faith. Faith is when what I say I believe becomes what I've committed myself to. You can't enter into the kingdom of heaven without committing yourself unto the truths of Christ. And you can't commit yourself unto the truths of Christ if you're hedging your bets against the possibility that Christ is a sham. That's not faith. And so Jesus says, if you're going to be converted, you're going to come as a child. You're going to become as a child. You're going to humble yourself. You're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven with childlike faith. And the greatest in the kingdom is the one who humbles himself as the child. 
And with that in mind, Jesus then says, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. So the man who is a loving follower of God, walking in the way of Christ, sees life a different way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel for the wise and for the strong and for the honorable. The gospel is the gospel for the poor and the weak and the sorrowful. And so Jesus would say in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 8, Verily I say unto you, excuse me, I'm not switching here. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you see it? That to receive a child in Christ's name is to receive the essence of that which the gospel means. The gospel is for all men. But the gospel is not received by the man who sees in himself greatness and might and wealth and power and honor. The gospel is received by those who submit themselves unto the power of Christ. Who say, I can't. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how much honor you have on this earth. The man who receives the gospel is the man who says, spiritually speaking, Lord, I am bankrupt and I need you and I can't do it without you. My money can't get me to heaven. My ability can't get me to heaven. My honor and my fame can't get me to heaven. Only you can, Christ. And to receive this, and so to receive even children in Christ's name is to understand the essence of Christ. And so to understand the heart of the Father. And once you understand this, you will then understand that it is the most humble, kind, patient, gentle, generous. That are the greatest in the kingdom. The one who serves the best is the greatest in the eyes of the Lord. And then our heart will reach out to those who are ready to receive the gospel in this way. Now, just to round out our understanding of this, there's a grave warning to those who would pervert the gospel for their own ends or to their own ideas in the book of Matthew. Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 18, verses 6 and 7, But whosoever, whoso, excuse me, shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck And that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. The word offend there literally means to cause to stumble. Now Jesus begins with the child. And make no mistake here, Jesus is talking in part about a love for children. That we are not to to hinder the children from coming to the Lord. But you'll notice that he broadens his context here. As he broadens his context, he's not specifically speaking of a hurting, of hurting a child or abusing a child. He's speaking of perverting the gospel in such a way that you discourage the innocent, the weak, or the simple from coming to Christ. 
When we add layers of expectation to the gospel, when we throw up barriers to a person's desire to receive, when we add confusion where God adds clarity, when we say that the gospel is some for not, but not for all, I think of the problems that James came to in the book of James where he talks about the churches uh, that, that uh, he was rebuking and he says that you bring the rich men in and you put them in the high seats and then you tell the, the poor men to sit on the floor. And he says, why are you doing this? Aren't it, isn't it the rich in this world that are, that are, are abusing you? Isn't it the rich in the world that are persecuting you? And yet you take the rich and you give them these elevated seats and you take the poor and you say, here, you can sit at his footstool. And in doing so, are you not telling the, that poor man that somehow in the eyes of the church and thus the eyes of God, he means less? And that's the essence of what Jesus is saying here. Those that would offend, those that would place a stumbling block before the innocent, the weak, before the needy in their desire unto Christ. Paul told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ can be corrupted by so many deceits. And not only do they float around in the world, but they can float around in the church as well. And so Jesus said, woe unto the world because of offenses. He says, it it must needs be, it must be that offenses come, but woe unto the man by whom those offenses come. May it not be you nor I. But the faith of Christ is a childlike faith. A life lived for Christ is embodied in the simplicity of the two great commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And the second like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The greatest among us in God's eyes is not the man with the most degrees or the man with the biggest church or the man with the most knowledge or the man with the most years logged. In the system, the greatest among us is the servant of all. And so I'd like to ask a question as we close today. I wanted to go, I was thinking about going in several directions. I mean, we could talk about many different things from this passage. But I only want to go in one, and I want to go in one just so that we'll focus on it this evening. The question is this, of what does your life consist Let's just take this passage where Jesus takes it. These men are following Jesus, but they're missing a broader principle. They're following Jesus, but their faith faltered at the Sea of Galilee. They're following Jesus, but their faith faltered at the, at the feeding of the 5,000. They're following Jesus, but their faith faltered at the casting out of this demon. And now at the end of all this, what are they doing? They're not debating about their faith. They're debating about who's greatest. There's something wrong here. There's something fundamentally wrong with the way they are thinking. They are so stuck on them, 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 them. And that's what we see here. That's what Luke has been building to. Luke, we've seen trial after trial, testing after testing, Jesus rebuking after Jesus rebuking. And it builds to this. And you'd think at this point they would just be on their knees begging Christ for something. Begging Christ uh, to, to, to humble them. And instead, they're squabbling over who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. 
It shows a natural disconnect between the essence of the gospel and the essence of their ministry. And I fear that maybe we can have this disconnect too. That as we live and as we serve and we do what we do for the gospel of Jesus Christ and we serve in our churches and we love others and we try all of these things, at the end of the day, what's on our mind is, I wonder who's greatest in the kingdom. I wonder if I'm going to get recognition for this or for that. I wonder about who saw me doing this or who saw me doing that. Does anybody even care? Jesus said in Mark 10, verses 42 to 44, He saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Jesus says, look, the world around you, it's vying for position. That's the way the world works. That's the way the world turns. You work on getting ahead. You move forward. You, you climb the ladder. You, you vie for positions. That's how this world works. He says, but that's not how you're going to work. That cannot be how you're going to work. That is not the system that Christ put in place. He says, it shall not be this way among you. Rather, the greatest among you will be called minister. Minister. It doesn't just mean the guy that gets up and preaches, right? That's not what the term minister means. It means to meet the needs of others. The chiefest among you will be the servant. The most praised before God is the least praised before men. So of what does your life consist Why do you do what you do? We saw, first of all, as we consider the disciples' failures, them simply not doing anything. They're on the Sea of Galilee and they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Well, you think he cares? He cares. They're supposed to feed the 5,000 and they say, Master, we don't have enough money. Jesus knew that. And then they finally get over that, right? So now they're going to do something. They're going to take some initiative. And they say, aha, we can do this one. We've got this one covered. And they fail. Of what does your life consist? Are you in that place where your faithlessness consists of you just not doing? Because one reason or another, you just don't believe that God can use you or will use you or, or, or you don't believe you can or whatever the case may be. Or maybe you're not there. And more than likely, in this group, you're not. But are you, and this is where we really need to inspect our hearts, are you in that place where you are doing, but you're doing? You're busy about the work. To your ends. You've never asked the Lord, is this where you want me? You don't seek the Lord for His power before you do it. You don't see yourself as a tool being used. You see yourself as the user. And that's where the disciples found themselves in between squabbling about who is greatest in the kingdom. 
How much do you do that is not for you or for thanks or for compensation or for reward? How often are you truly, is your heart truly motivated by serving others? Children, are you a servant? Do you serve your family? Do you serve your parents? Do you serve your siblings? When was the last time you went out of your way to bless someone other than yourself? When was the last time you set your own desires aside to meet the desires of another? Truly, legitimately, just to bless someone, not for your own gain, not because if you do this, then mom and dad will do that for you, but because that's what is right. That's who Christ is. That is what it means to be great. Parents, are you a servant? Do you serve your children? Do you serve your spouse? When was the last time you stepped out of yourself specifically to be a blessing to your wife, to be a blessing to your husband, specifically to serve the needs of your children? What about the church? Are you a servant? Is everything in the church about how it can meet your needs? Do ministries have to be on your terms? When's the last time you just looked for a need and said, I'm going to fill that? Not for any other reason than the fact that it needs to be filled. When you poured out what you had, or maybe even what you didn't have, to bless others. What about the needy? What about the innocent? What about the weak? Jesus took a child and he set him in their midst. That child was not a great influence upon his society. He was not a great thinker in his society. That child was a child. And yet that child could serve. That child could trust. And so Jesus said, Whoso receives this child in my name receives me. Whoso humbles himself as this child, the same is great in the kingdom of heaven. That's what makes you great in the eyes of God. Are you giving of yourself? Or is everything that you do motivated by your own ends? So you know the Bible really well. You come to church regularly. And you have conformed yourself to the moral code that reflects biblical decency. Those are all good things. But have you come outside of yourself for long enough to see others? Have you looked around to see who needs to be served and served them? See, because on the day that you get into the kingdom of heaven, you won't take a test on your Bible knowledge. It will not be the man who spent the most days at church that will be most exalted. It will not be the man who conformed to a certain moral code that will be most exalted. It will be the man who humbled himself before God and then was used by God to serve others. Scriptures say that will be the greatest of all. And the question is, where will you stand on that day? Will you still be in the corner squabbling about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or will you simply count yourself blessed to have been used as a tool by the Lord for the kingdom of heaven? Let's pray together.